I'm Felina. And I'm Summer. And you are listening to Broke and Broken. <laughs> because we're both. The podcast about living your best life by getting real. Hey, broken people. This is Summer. And this is Felina. I apologize for my voice, and I will probably be um, coughing in your ears as we go, but I've been sick, so you'll just have to deal with it or not. <laughs> okay, so you want an update on what happened when I went to uh, court with my 15-year-old? Over the vape, remember, I think we talked about that on Johnny's episode. Oh, yeah, yeah, okay. Yeah. So what happened, just a re- quick recap. <laughs> okay, so there, um, his friend had a vape at school, and they never found the vape, <laughs> so they didn't even know if it had nicotine or anything. But what they did was went back through the um, security camera footage for the entire day and busted everybody that had touched the thing. And they got in school, um, I guess they call it in school isolation now. Um, which is fine, give him that, you know, he's being stupid, breaking rules, fine, whatever. But they also did a law enforcement referral. Oh, that's right. Right. So he got a $181 ticket and a mandatory court appearance where they can give them community service and or probation. I'm so thrilled about that. I mean, and I had a long rant on my Twitter about referring um, (laughs) juveniles for offenses that don't harm anyone. Uh, I also think I told the, I'm pretty sure I told the principal, I hope he's proud of his contribution to the school to prison pipeline right before I hung up on him. I think I recall (laughs) you telling me that. Yes. Yes. So we went to court and um, he gets his little card. He's, he was officially known as juvenile number one (laughs) at the courthouse. And so we go in and sit with the city attorney who... I do not handle being condescended to by men, particularly older white men, very well. (laughs) So he's talking down to me and I'm just like looking at him. And he says, you don't seem to be taking this very very seriously. And I'm like, obviously not as seriously as you are. (laughs) Because he's recommending six months probation. He's like, well, did you know he was vaping? Well, not specifically, but he's 15, so I assumed as much. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so then we both get a lecture about how this is illegal and dangerous. And I'm just like, okay, you already know what you're recommending, so can we just sign the paperwork and go sign and wait to be called on the docket? So finally he does that. I don't think he was very impressed with me, which is fine. And I was ranting on Twitter from the courtroom. So in any event, in the end, he had, he is now... My, my juvenile delinquent is now on probation for the first time. Proud mommy status. And oh <laughs> and I was getting increasingly more furious as I was sitting there, not just because, you know, it's ridiculous to get probation over a vape, but I'm listening to the cases um, on the docket before us, and they're handing out probation for traffic offenses and all sorts of things. I'm like, this is insane. Like, who thought that these ordinances were a good idea? There's nothing okay about this. Nothing at all. And yeah. Now, I did, my son has to be very very grateful to me right now. (laughs) Because when we were in there with the city attorney, I looked up the ordinances before I went in there. Because that's who I am. Exactly. It does not say anything about vape. It specifies tobacco. And so he's sitting there telling me, we look at vapes the same way. Our our law says the same thing. I'm like, actually, it doesn't. Doesn't say anything about vapes. And every attorney brain cell I had really wanted to argue this point, but then I'm like, I don't want to get my kid in more trouble, so I let it go. So he should be very grateful because that was painful for me. (laughs) Would have been painful for me as well. I don't know if I would have been able to restrain myself. (laughs) (laughs) It was hard, but yeah, we did. And we got a lecture from the judge too because that's handled in chambers because they're juveniles, so that doesn't happen in open court. So we we go back there and he's like, you know making it clear he doesn't agree with the law. And he's like, but I have to enforce the law. And I'm like, actually, you have to enforce the law, which giving him the ticket would be. You don't have to give the child probation. Right. You really don't. Right. But you're doing it anyway. mandatory sentencing of juveniles. Right. So I'm like, don't give me this. I get really tired of people making excuses. But in any event, so. What's your Twitter handle so if anybody wants to read your (laughs) rant? It's at Chata Summer, and there's no vowels in the summer. So it's C-H-A-H-T-A-S-M-M-R. Okay. So yes, there's lots of lovely rants about there. I had people outraged <laughs> because it's yeah, it's just ridiculous. Well, it's outrageous. They it is. Be. It's it's ridiculous. There is no reason to be funneling juveniles into the court system. No. Over normal behavior. Right. Right. Yes. 
Well, I look forward to an update on how your son is probation. <laughs> oh, Lord. Oh. If he breaks probation, I'm going to. <laughs> because, if, I mean, anything can break probation. Mm-hmm. I mean, if he had that vape out on the sidewalk, he doesn't have to have it at school. If he had, had it out on the sidewalk, he could still get It's It's just ridiculous, and I'm still pissed off that we have these laws. Rightfully so. Rightfully so. <laughs> Well, anyway, moving on, <laughs> we do have a guest today. I'll let yes. Summer introduce her. Today we have Jonna James, and she does a million things. What do you, <laughs> how do you want to, what's your title that you want to use today? So let's talk about Standing Our Ground for Children and okay. co-founding that. Okay, well, let's start with your story okay. first. Okay, a little bit about you. Yeah, uh-huh. and then we'll go into that, because that kind of helps explain and give some context to how this that happened. Like how I got myself into all of this, right? Yes. Okay. So you were adopted, right? I was adopted by a stepfather. Okay. And so even backing up a little bit before that, I was okay. born in 1978. Mm. The same year that the Indian Child Welfare Act actually went into law. Um, my father is a citizen of the Chickasaw Nation, which would have made me a citizen of the Chickasaw Nation. Today I am a citizen of the Chickasaw Nation, but initially my non-native mother would not let me enroll oh. specifically because of the Indian Child Welfare Act. And I knew that. Um, she had mentioned several times growing up that, you know, the tribe might intervene. Um, and today we know that that's not true and that would not have likely happened. But she was 18 years old, young, not native, did not understand, which we're seeing that even today, just a misunderstanding. Right, every day. Um, But because I knew about the law from that perspective, and I really wanted to know about what had happened there. So my my Chickasaw grandmother, like most Chickasaw, or most native grandmothers, she intervened on my behalf. So when I was 18, I called the Chickasaw Nation and they said, your grandmother actually enrolled you when you were a teenager. I know. So so I did have my CDIB card at that point. and, And to me, that was a pivotal moment in my journey. I did grow up the first eight years of my life in a native community and I knew I was native, but I just did not have my card. And that fight began actually when I was five years old and my kindergarten teacher would not let me have my school supplies. Um, I stood Mm -hmm. in line with the other Indian kids and I was not on the list for lack of CDIB and I was told to take a seat. And so you know those pivotal moments that you just know that um, that was the moment that changed something for you. And that was the moment that changed that for me. So as as I became 18 and I start intentionally trying to reconnect with that piece of myself, I went to college. I was a political science major with the intention of going to law school, and I began studying Native law, and I studied the Indian Child Welfare Act. And through that process, I actually fell in love with the law. I feel like it's a gold standard, and I feel like if it had been respected um, in my space and in my story, then um, it would have protected my connection with my culture versus the journey I had to go back and the things that I had to go through to reconnect um, so I was adopted um, in my teen years, um, and, and I had an amazing stepdad, but the point of the whole entire conversation is the Indian Child Welfare Act was thwarted in my situation, and my tribe was not notified, and had those steps been taken, I would have had people intervene and connect me to my culture faster, and I think it, I, I don't um, have any resentment towards the outcomes today, but I think it could have changed the outcomes a little bit quicker and better for me. How do you feel about your mom having kept you from your community? Not just the, the legal aspect of the CDIB, but not being involved in, because even if your father wasn't involved, I'm, you know, there's family. Right, <laughs> so right. how do you feel about that? And, and that was kind of the main thing. It, it never really, I mean, I loved my Chickasaw dad, but it was more about my Chickasaw grandmother and the connection I desired to have with her. Um, so I was very angry for a lot of years with my mother and I was very vocal with her about that. I realized in hindsight as a mom myself that as a mom she was doing what she felt like she needed to do mm-hmm. based out of misunderstanding but sure. still with her best interest at heart. Yeah. Um, and of course wanting to protect her children and again being mm-hmm. a young mom not understanding. But with that being said, that's why I'm such an advocate today, because it is the Indian Child Welfare Act. And so this was not about my mom, my dad, my stepdad, my tribe. It should have been about my right to have a connection to my tribe and my culture as a child. That's what I try to explain to people all the time, whether it's adoption or custody matters, is 
a lot of times they're talking about what all the adults want, or right. what they. And I'm like, but shouldn't we focus on the ch- the the rights of the child? And none of the laws really. Well, the Indian Child Welfare Act is one of the better ones about focusing on the rights of the ch- children. State adoption laws are absolutely not geared towards the rights of the children. In fact, they are written specifically to work around that. Um, so, absolutely. That's actually why we won't adopt the um, what is it? The UN's Bill of Children's Bill of Rights. Is that what it's called? Something the like that. The rights of an indigenous. Well, not just the indigenous, the children's entirely because it would affect our adoption laws mm-hmm. and that's a multi-billion dollar a year industry oh, right everything's about money of course yeah it's yeah. capitalism right that's what it is <laughs> when it comes to legalizing marijuana but sorry don't get me started on that i know i was hearing <laughs> questions about that the other day from somebody who's um, going to ihs which is NNL services and because it's against federal law they won't prescribe and they're position is if you come back if you go to an outside doctor and you come back and you fail a drug test even though it's been prescribed to you that you will not see that that they won't see you anymore they won't treat you anymore and so she was trying to figure out how to deal with that so I told her what you know some of the things Johnny had told us about Mm -hmm. juicing and how to go around that because then you're not you don't have the THC problem to fail the drug yeah. test <laughs> actually she it has the same thing she has lupus too like Johnny right. so I was like maybe you need to talk to Johnny about this and y'all can figure out how to work around this because yeah IHS is not helpful on that <laughs> so you mentioned the gold you you use the phrase gold standard which we hear come up a lot about yes. ICWA what do you want to explain that from a social work ish perspective I know you're not specifically a social worker but well so I, I will also share I was an Indian child welfare caseworker mm-hmm. and um, for a tribe for a period of time, and to me the gold standard conversation comes from the other side of that conversation, which you'll hear from adoption attorneys or those that are the anti-ICWA crowd, where they will say it's an antiquated law. But if you study the law, it's actually not antiquated. It is nope. a gold standard. And so there are a few things that if you are an Indian child, you have certain protections. For example, you have active efforts in your case. And there's several places where they have to provide active efforts. One, active efforts to find your biological family. Active efforts to help your parents recover. So if an indigenous parent has a substance abuse problem and is ordered to treatment, then the case manager um, as part of active efforts would be responsible for actually driving that parent maybe to treatment or um, helping arrange that treatment versus just telling that parent you need to go to treatment. They right. have to provide the active effort. But as an Indian Child Welfare caseworker who had state cases um, or, or in, in Indian children that were in state custody and have to sit in a state court and see the cases that were not ICWA, that were not Native, like it was seriously cringeworthy because you would watch these children who um, – you know, just kind of skim the the search for family, and then they were based on biological strangers. Mm-hmm. Um, and then on the other side of that, you saw parents that are already struggling with mental health issues or substance abuse issues, and minus active efforts, they don't know how to dig themselves out of this generational, um, well, for our people, a lot of times generational um, uh, cycles of, of abuse and, and mental health. And so for those children that are not Native, from my perspective, I actually saw a lesser level of effort to mm-hmm. rehabilitate. Absolutely. And, and again, that's based completely on my, it's my opinion, based out of though my lived experience in watching that. And so when I say that ICWA is a gold standard, every child and their family should have active effort. Right. They we should be doing it. Thanks for all kids. Absolutely. Yes, they deserve sense. to try to be placed with their family. It, we know that children with any type of familial connection, native or non-native, that those outcomes are better. And we also know that, um, you know, children do do better when they make it back home with their parents. And so are we really doing everything we can to make sure that those parents succeed and are able to get their kids back? And, and active efforts is a gold standard because it, yes. it, it requires that inside of ICWA. And I think all children should have a right to those things. I agree. I agree. Um, you know, active efforts, you have to actually try to help them find find a program under reasonable efforts, which is what state law is. Literally, all you have to tell them is you need to get treatment. 
you don't have to give them, a, you know, help them find a program. And when you have people who are already struggling, they're not going. To they don't know how yeah. to start yeah. a lot of them. Mm-hmm. Right. And then navigating the system to get in because we have so few resources is absolutely grueling. Mm-hmm. I don't know how anybody with mental health issues or substance abuse issues, I don't know how they would manage it. Yeah. Because I feel like I'm jumping through flaming spinning hoops to try to help somebody get into right. a program. Right. I don't know how you do it if you're already struggling. Yeah. And you don't have anybody advocating for you. Right. Yeah. And you mentioned native or non-native familiar connections. <laughs> I want to make a point to say <laughs> it seems like the most common misconception about ICWA is that a child cannot be placed with a non-native. And that's not true. Family is the first priority for placement. That's family, the child's family. It does not matter if they're native or, or not. Right. And that, that is the most common thing I hear of people who are opposing the ICWA because they think that that means the child's going to be taken from, say, a non-native grandmother mm-hmm. and placed with a native stranger. Right. And that's not how it works. It's based on the child's right to their family and their um extended community exactly so back in my situation had Mm -hmm. it been invoked it wouldn't have taken me away from my mom right because there was no reason to take me away from my mom but what it would have done is would have required active efforts to repair that connection with my father's side of my family and therefore my my chickasaw side of my family and that would have been reversed you know as well so again and we see that a lot not everybody not both sides are native Right. Children have a right to all of their family connections. And and the placement preference, it is family first. It's not native family first, it's family right. first. So you mentioned standing our ground. Yes. I'm about to get a migraine because I know this is the Veronica Brown case is coming up. <laughs> okay, so how did that start? <laughs> I need a little bit of background. I'm probably not the only person who doesn't know right. anything <laughs> about this. So. Oh, okay. Right. Yeah. So I think those tell of us the background. Who don't know. I'm just going to sit in the corner and see while you explain And be this quiet case. and see if we can explain this case. Okay. <laughs> I don't know that there's enough time. I don't even know if we did a podcast series, if there would be enough time. We can just hit the highlights. Yeah, right. just, just a so, brief summary. Okay, so trying to summarize, in 2013 is kind of when it, kind, it came to a head. But there was a, um, a case of, uh, that in, involved a Cherokee child. Her name was Veronica Brown. Mm-hmm. And her non-native mother had put her up for private adoption. Um, There were a lot of... Without notifying her father. Without proper notification. And her Um, father is native. Her father is a citizen of the Cherokee Nation. Um, Her father was um, stationed um, in Fort Sill. He was Mm -hmm. in the military. Um, He was served a notice, my understanding is a day or two before he deployed, in a parking lot. Yes. And he signed for the notice, but there was other things written into that notice. For example, I'm receiving this paperwork and I know my daughter's being put up for adoption. So that's, when you go look up the Veronica Brown story, that is kind of one of the twists in the story that he signed off on his daughter's adoption and that is not the case. He signed off on a notice in a parking lot. Right. Right. And even if he had, that would not be valid um, relinquishment under ICLA. Right. Under the Indian Child Welfare Act, uh, you do have to sign in front of a judge yes. and you have 10 days. It has to be 10 days after the child's born. So, it, so. Now, mind you, this was a pre birth match. She had matched. Um, this was his first notification that she was put, trying to place the child. She had matched during her pregnancy with a couple. They had been paying her expenses um, and all of this. And she went into hiding so he could not contact her. He did not know this was happening. She, she, intent, they intentionally hid the birth. He was not notified when the child was born. So he didn't know any of this was happening. And here he is about to ship out and he gets notified in a parking lot. Right. Okay. So um, my understanding is there were some court proceedings and, and the child was actually supposed to go to family and that was ignored. And she was in fact moved to South Carolina with the adoptive couple. Without a required ICPC, which is interstate compact for placement of children right. you have to have you know the proper procedures in order sure. to take the child to another state that was not done okay mm-hmm. right so one of the things mm-hmm. we found out during this case was um oklahoma did contract out the icpc process to somebody that actually had ties to an adoption agency and there were several Shocking. right and there were several 
um, situations um, where ICPCs were being backdated and, and that's not how that process is supposed to work. So this child did make it to South Carolina and um, through a court process and um, at the point that Cherokee Nation intervened, um, there was not a fight for original jurisdiction. And so jurisdiction was moved to South Carolina. Adoption attorneys in that state have really done a good job of manipulating that state's laws. So if you are a father, a punitive father, and you have not supported that mother up until birth, you don't have any rights to that child. Oklahoma state laws are the same right. as South Carolina's. And, the, and there's a father registry. And um, so there was there was some kind of things there as well that caused some issues in the case. I mean, so um, at the point that ICWA was invoked, the court found that she should be returned to her father. So she did come home to her dad for 21 months while the rest of this case was played out. It went to the South Carolina Supreme Court and then it went all the way up to the Supreme Court of the United States. So with what, the worst ruling I have read in my adult life. Absolutely terrible ruling. One of the things, and, and, and so I want to go ahead and add on to that conversation because it's just appropriate with the whole DNA mess right now. Yes, that's what I'm thinking is all that talk about percentages and yes. she's barely Indian. I'm like, excuse me, that's not how federal Indian law works. Shall right. we go back to law school here? Right. right. You're either a citizen of a tribe or you're not. Just as if you're a citizen of America, we don't say, well, how much American are you, you know, right. or how much Chinese are you? Like, you are either a citizen or not. But that was actually written into the, the Supreme Court decision. It was, and it was one of the... so. The problem behind all of that is her CDIB card was not made public. It was not supposed to be brought up in court, but the adoptive couple did have connections to a media firm. Mm -hmm. And that information about her blood quantum did get out, and it was driven in this ma this massive media campaign to say she was a drop of Cherokee blood, and because of that, mm -hmm. that, um, you know, ICWA should not be invoked, and... Um, and it should not have been a consideration. Again, you are no. either tribal or you're not. Right. But it goes back to the impact the media had that Absolutely. it ended up in the Supreme Court of the United States in their decision was to say Veronica Brown, a Cherokee child who was a 30, I think it was 132nd. I don't remember. I don't, I don't remember um, the percentage, but but it, it does list her blood quantum in that actual decision. It does. And, and it should not have. Right up front. Right. And, and it shouldn't have, it's not supposed to be a consideration. And where they did backflips to, and it was such a terrible decision that they actually issued new regulations and enforcement guides for the Indian Child Welfare Act because it, it was clear, the uh, Supreme Court ruling was clearly against the intent of the law. Absolutely. Um, yeah, we affectionately refer to it as the, the day the Supreme Court was smoking crack. Um, <laughs> or maybe that's just me and a couple other attorneys. <laughs> but they did backflips to say that in ICWA didn't apply because um, it was designed to not um, separate intact family. So it went back to the fact that in both Oklahoma and South Carolina, unmarried fathers have no custody rights until given them by a court. Since he was not given them by a court, before she was placed for adoption, he wasn't considered a legal father. Therefore, they said ICWA didn't apply because he was never really her father. It was not an intact family. Right. So not only are you creating a problem with ICWA, you just screwed over every uh, unmarried father. Right, yeah. And There's military. Thing as fathers, right? And military fathers as well, oh, because wow. that's part of what happened here mm -hmm. was there was the whole argument about well, she didn't go to live with her father until she was two, two. Mm -hmm. um, but that's because he was this deployed deploy, for a yeah. huge amount of time because he got that notice right before he deployed. He went immediately to the next day to JAG, but there was nothing. You know, and they filed paperwork that literally nothing could be done until he was back in the country. Mm -hmm. So that's why that delay happened. What a despicable and thing then it to was do used to against a man him. who's serving our country. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And then that was used against him. So now there's this dicta in this case mm -hmm. that can be raised again to um, <laughs> to take away fathers' rights to their children. I hate that. I was raised by a single dad, mm -hmm. so that hits home. Mm -hmm. That's really sad. I, and I didn't, I'm embarrassed that I didn't know anything about this case, so thank you for giving me the backdrop of what it is that 
you're doing now. Right. Well, and so standing our ground for children, part of the problem was, <coughs> you know, and, and why we argue today, people say, well, why is this DNA test with Senator Warren such a big deal? And this is why. Because um, the media really influenced this outcome. So before it got to the Supreme Court of the United States, um, my friend and peer, Dr. Nikki Michael, I love Nikki. And she had, she's an awesome, awesome professor of Native Studies. Mm-hmm. And her and I had, uh, I, I called her and I said, this is about our sovereignty. And this is about this child's rights. Mm-hmm. And this is an attack on our sovereignty. This is not about what's best for this child. Um, because there were some other players in this game that really needed this this decision for other reasons that were not necessarily about Veronica that, that attached themselves to this case being made aware of it through the media so I called her and I said we we have to respond somehow like we can't I cannot as an indigenous woman sit by and watch this happen and so we formed standing our ground for children together and um you know and is it a nonprofit? Or it is a nonprofit. Okay. So we are a program underneath the Lenapowski Foundation. So we are um, Lenapowski Foundation is a nonprofit that Nikki has, um, and then so Standing Our Ground for Children is a is a program that we put under that, and, and we really tried to combat the media at the time. We were two Native women doing the best we can to fight for for what we saw was happening to this child and her family, and and what we knew to be was wrong. And when she says media campaign, they had a huge media campaign. They went on a public relations tour, the adopted mm-hmm. family. They went on Dr. Phil, talking about how terrible tribes are, just trying to steal children from mm-hmm. their parents. These were not even, their adoption wasn't even final. It didn't finalize until after the Supreme Court decision. So they're at this time, for all intents and purposes, foster parents at most. Right and they're going on this campaign demonizing tribes for trying to steal children by giving them back to their family right wow. so yeah it was a whole interesting twisted pr and thing. the name of their campaign was actually save veronica yes. rose like this child needed to be saved from her family which was actually there was never anything proven that this was not a good family she was with her family and um and thriving she and thriving well. she was doing well and um, loved her family and um, loved her tribe and was surrounded by her people and her culture and um, and so we had started rallies we um, at Standing Our Ground for Children we were at the courthouses we were at the Supreme Court we um, reached out to the United Nations and was able to get some um, a response from them um, they actually advocated for Veronica's rights as an indigenous child mm-hmm. to be recognized the Department of Justice, we reached out to them, and they too advocated for her rights to be recognized. Um, we had an effective media campaign at Standing Our Ground for Children. It brought a lot of awareness and really kind of told the true story when the Western media was really telling the story that this media firm and the couple has, was spinning. With that being said, obviously, it was not an effective enough media campaign. Um, we had another situation following a right towards the end of Baby Veronica case was it that's what everybody called it the baby veronica case with a, a absentee shawnee citizen desiree and we mm-hmm. had we had somebody reach out to us and it was actually south carolina again the mm-hmm. same adoption attorneys and we were able to intervene and attorneys were able to intervene we were able to um fight for original jurisdiction and she did make it back to her family so um the outcomes unfortunately we cannot take back what's happened to veronica we'll have to wait till she's she's grown and, and makes her way home but um there were also some lessons learned from veronica that has really helped us keep some some children been able to either get them home or keep them home and so nikki and i debated after veronica brown after that that final decision and she was removed from in my opinion forcibly removed as an indian child from indian land yes by federal marshals which is just a violation of of all all kinds of laws. Yes, but they literally she, sent federal marshals to pick up this child she was from forced, her family. She was a forcibly removed Indian child. And um, so, I, I listened to Chrissy Nemo, who was the um, attorney general of the Cherokee Nation, and she's the one who had to actually take Veronica and hand her over. And I listened to her one time. She came to speak at OU Law, and she told the story about having to take her and her crying and how awful it was to make that handoff 
Right. And she says, of course, now she's a mother herself. She wasn't at the time. She said, had I had children at that point, I, w- I don't think I would have been able to do it because it was so horrible because she was terrified. Uh, you know, she's being picked up by federal marshals and being told, you know, and has no idea if she's ever going to see her family again. Right. That's horrifying. I'm... And so we really debated about whether we were going to continue with standing our ground for children or at that time it was standing our ground for Veronica Brown. Mm-hmm. Um, and what happened is we had an influx of grandmothers and, and family members reaching out and saying, I have this Indian child, and they're not with family. And we had national case after national case. There was one out of Alaska where grandmother was fighting for that child. The mother and child were moved from the village to the mainland to receive treatment for mom. Child was put in a non-native foster home while mom received treatment mom's treatment failed and instead of sending baby back to village to grandma the non-native foster parents were able to fight her and i believe on that decision they they won as well Mm. and and so case after case after case kept coming to our our our, um this is way more common than people realize it is Mm -hmm. and the need for somebody to help show where those resources are or to help know how to fight ICWA in a state court um i know um, so I was also part of the state of Oklahoma. We did a, a recruitment project when I was a tribal worker. I was a tribal chair for that that recruitment project, specifically to recruit native foster homes. Um, Which we need more of, by the way. We absolutely if you qualify. If you qualify to be a native <laughs> foster home, that's one of the ways. Like we we need native people to to step up and, and take some of our kids. Um, and, and continue that tradition of it takes a village to raise a child and in, in indigenous communities we need to step up and be doing that for our indigenous children and um, so I was part of that that project and and we found ourselves having to educate a lot of times mm-hmm. on um, just to judges or DHS workers or you know um, what the Indian Child Welfare Act meant and how it was applied there was a lot of misunderstanding and so we we did and still do a lot of trainings about the whys of ICWA and the hows of ICWA. Um, and so there's definitely been a need, and so we did continue with standing our ground for children. Life has been kind of quiet the last couple of years other than just behind the scenes. You know, we've done some projects here and there and helped with some educational pieces and intervened as necessary. We've never had a case escalate to the level of Veronica, which is good because we never want to put a child in the media. That's yeah. not what's best for no. a child at all. We did not, I mean, it's, it's it's just not good for them sure. but at the point for in Veronica's case again going back to adoptive couple they had baby Veronica perfume they were trying to sell they they were marketing this child to bring attention to their own story mm-hmm. and I actually I mean as a native woman and, and I giggle because at the time it was not a thought process it was a as a native woman I have to do something for this native child but I called the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children and reported her as being exploited oh really I did wow I don't think which, I would have thought to do that <laughs> which is why in the beginning but they really were exploiting they her. were exploiting her and so after I did that that you know I started getting fake profiles on Facebook made with my name on them saying I was a devil worshiper and um, just attacks on my children's blogs and um, just, you know, all kinds of things out there in the media. So I I became personally attacked for for my response to those situations. But I do believe and still maintain that she was being exploited at that time. And and there was a lot of money that came in from that campaign. And so, um, so it was quiet for a couple years until here lately. Oh, Lord. Right, Texas. I hate you, Texas, right now. I really okay, do. Okay, so what's happening in Texas? <laughs> a ruling came out um, by a federal court ruling just came out in Texas. How long has it been? A couple weeks? It's like two, three weeks. Yeah, it hasn't yeah. been terribly long. Stating that uh, ICWA is a race-based law. And unconstitutional. It's therefore unconstitutional under equal protection. <laughs> this is supposedly, a, and this is where I keep getting you know people who think they understand law arguing with me because they're like, yes, but that's settled law. But you don't understand. This is intentional because they want to run it up to the Supreme Court because we've already got this history with Veronica Brown and now we've got a different court makeup. And this is why Kavanaugh was so important because Mm -hmm. Kavanaugh has a history of anti-sovereignty. So he will not uphold ICWA. Absolutely. And so this, I mean, this has been, we've, we've known this was coming for years. This has been, there's been an intentional campaign with millions upon millions of dollars every year poured into it to challenge, to challenge sovereignty through ICWA. And there's, it's supported, there's groups who are anti-sovereignty. Why? Coupled with 
adoption lobby because the adoption lobby wants to get rid of ICWA to increase the supply to their demand and you've got the anti-sovereignty group and they're just and it even goes back to and and we saw some of these players that intervened in Veronica's case that had connections to the whole gambling piece the gambling compacts and and that's even part of why it's sovereignty. That's from part of that why they're anti-sovereignty Absolutely. is because there's the the money issue. Money. It with, all goes back to money. Well, yes. it always does. Yes. And so, explain to me why somebody is anti-sovereignty. I mean, well, how does that chain of how does that connect to the money? Like, well, how is that beneficial? as far as it connects to the money, is you get the like the um, she mentioned the gaming compacts, mm-hmm. which is really the primary. Um, money connection to sovereignty sure because what happens is least particularly here in Oklahoma the compacts have exclusivity agreements okay. which means if the state allows gaming that is not the tribal gaming then they have to pay back so part they each compact is, is different but as part of all of them there's a certain amount that the tribe pays to the state mm-hmm. for, in exchange for exclusivity, which means they won't let any tri- anybody sure. who's not one of the nations operate ga- gaming. Right. So if they eliminate sovereignty, they eliminate all of that, and then they can build their businesses. Okay. Okay. That makes more sense. That's actually why Trump is anti-sovereignty. He's been complaining about this since the 80s. <laughs> uh, you can find of course. you can find the, you can find the quotes. He has this huge problem with tribal casinos, and this is why because it's competition and all of that. Mm-hmm. And so they've attacked our kiddos. Yeah, they don't care how they're damaging yeah. our children for their money. Absolutely, it's sick. It's all sick. Mm-hmm. So this this situation out of Texas was very intentionally played. There were Absolutely. several other states that had. Um, lawsuits and they were all pulled into this district court decision and my understanding that they've even created or in the process of creating a split circuit so that Supreme Court will to be make, more likely to force it to force Supreme Court to take it I mean it is genius level manipulation, manipulation. and yeah. tactics to get this to the Supreme Court yeah mm-hmm. and get to get ICWA stricken down well so even ICWA so we say ICWA but really if you read the Texas decision over and over and over it says a racial right. class of citizens right so they're really going over like okay so it's for those that may not know for the sake of this po- podcast American Indians are not just a racial class of citizens first and foremost we are a political class of citizens belong to to tribal nations who are domestic dependent nations under the, the word of the federal government that is how federal law sets us up right. but if they can get us reduced to a racial class of citizens right they eliminate our tribal governments right they eliminate all of all of those pieces of sovereignty they they are able to diminish our standing as a political class of citizens going back to the also the current issue of why not a dna test and that's exactly why not because we it's not a race base it's not ethnicity it is right it is our political class and that's what a lot of people don't understand is Native refers to federally recognized tribes. There are plenty of people who have ancestry who don't oh, qualify. Yeah. And so you you can't think of it as just ethnicity because right. there's and there's a lot of people who have who have enrolled parents in, in you know who are citizens of their nations who can't enroll themselves due to whatever their citizenship requirements are. So it's it's like a Venn diagram that overlaps but they're not the same thing. Right. The ethnicity and the, and the right. citizenship. Right. And so when we're talking about sovereignty, we're talking about the citizenship and the right to self-governance. And and literally that can be gotten rid of by a terrible Supreme Court decision saying it's a race that it's race-based or by a single act of Congress. And with that, all of our, I mean, with one signature, all of our sovereignty can be gone and our government's disbanded and us left with, I mean, our our governments have been struggling for the last several decades and making progress on helping our people, and all of that can be gone overnight, literally. Because you think our state or the federal government's going to come in to try to help with nope. those? <laughs> no, nope. it's not going to happen. They're just going to leave us to die like they always have. So with that, there's been an influx of inquiries to standing our ground yes. for children. I this just the first week alone, there was 250,000 people. It was unreal. Trying to answer questions, um, trying to do more education. People wondering. A lot of people scared mm-hmm. because they know as Native Americans that that this is putting their sovereignty at risk. Wanting to know how to help. Um, so we're trying to get that information out there and also getting ahead of the game when it comes to, if you look at all of the, the first slew of articles that came out, it was 
federal judge rules ICWA unconstitutional. Right. So or right strikes now, down strike ICWA, down ICWA, which is an overstatement. It's absolutely scared people. It right now, my, my understanding is that decision is limited to a northern area of Texas. It's not applicable across the United right. States at this point. Um, and it's going to be appealed at which time it's going to be stayed until that decision's made anyway. Absolutely. And so, um, but if you, again, the media articles make it sound like right. it's and been if, stricken down. Right. And so now who knows what DHS workers and what states are out there thinking, I don't right. have to follow this law anymore. So that was one of my main concerns or, or from my perspective was, um, hold on, we need to make sure we've got this narrative right and that we have right now, um, most of the stuff you can find on Twitter and Facebook right now is with the hashtag DefendIqua. So across Indian country and those that have responded, there's multiple organizations um, that have responded as well as tribal um, tribal nations. And you can find that DefendIqua hashtag. But, but to, to, to tell everybody, IQA is still here. Yes. We are trying to defend the law that protects our children. And we're going to continue to try to defend the law that protects our children. We're going to do everything within our power. Um, Indian country as a whole, um, it, that is a positive of all of this right now, is to see the resilience and strength of Indian country. Like, okay, we need a response, so what does that look like? And so um, there's a lot of response, a lot of people on board. Um, but but that was one of my first main concerns as a co-founder standing our ground for children is make sure that we got our platform back out there with information so that people could, could see what really happened versus reading these headlines that it was been stricken down. So. Right, right. Yeah. Oh. <sighs> Oh, some of the articles were just frustrating because why why don't media outlets have somebody that they consult with on this stuff? Because I'm like, whoever wrote this doesn't understand legal procedure at all or have Google, apparently. Well, anybody can be a journalist (laughs) these days. I mean... Well, in that case, if you're looking to hire somebody, I will do freelance work. (laughs) (laughs) I actually have a journalism degree. Oh, really? (laughs) That's what I did before I went to law school. (laughs) And, uh, you know, more often than not, I'm like, why don't I... If it paid... I would go back and, and do legal journalism because there are so many misinformed, yes. so many articles that are so misinformative and uh, clearly whoever wrote them has no legal knowledge, right? no ability to explain how the law actually works to the general population, which you really need to be able to do in order to properly report on legal issues. Right. So, uh, and misleading. Uh, headlines like that and the consequences of them are often overlooked by irresponsible journalists and they give journalists a bad name. Right. So it's a... Well, any journalists out there who don't have legal expertise, you're welcome to contract with me. I will read your article and fix it for you for a small fee. (laughs) (laughs) And I want to go ahead and put out there for those that want to help, you can start by getting the truth out. So you can go to Standing Our Ground for Children on Facebook or on Twitter. You can go back to Summer's Twitter. She, she's retweeted, you know, or tweeted a, a lot about this. And look up the Defend Iqua hashtag. There is. What's the hashtag? It's the Defend Iqua. So D, Defend and then ICWA. Um, but if you can go to Standing Our Ground, you could see some of the articles we posted. But there's actually a couple more um, more um, spaces at this point. So there's Turtle Talk WordPress, yes. which is a, 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 I think it's a journalism place. Is that correct or accurate? Legal. But it's legal decisions that come out of Indian country. And yes. You can actually it's run, go by, the law. It's run uh, by, by tribal attorneys. Okay. And so that one is a good resource if you're... Professors. <laughs> Who is it? One of them, uh, Matthew Fletcher, was one, one of my your professors, professors at um, when I was did the Pre-Law Summer Institute out at UNM. So I will say, if I ever want to know what the real truth is behind a legal decision that affects Indian country, my go-to is always Turtle Talk because that's they're going to have the summary and they're going to have the, the, the link to the documents and you'll be able to kind of get the truth on what's really behind that. There's also a, an organization that's been formed, the Partnership for Native Children, and Chrissy Ross Nima, who's the AG for the Cherokee Nation, is actually part of that organization, um, along with my friend Victoria uh, Sweet. And, um, love Victoria. We, I love her to pieces. <laughs> we've been, ta- we've been discussing this. Yeah. I'm going to send and her so, the link so she has to listen. <laughs> that's funny. Um, <laughs> as if she doesn't listen to Summer and Jonna enough. I, well, you know. I'm sure she loves You it, can though. never get Every minute. Of us. Right. <laughs> um, so, I, so once they, um, they really organize the Partnership for Native, the, yeah, the Partnership for Native Children, and it really, they have created these documents. It's, it's female attorneys, I believe. Yes. Mostly female attorneys. I believe the entire board is female. I think so as well. Hell yeah. Yeah. Awesome, right? <laughs> awesome, great. 
group of women and they are really doing a good job so their focus is on the media campaign and on helping people understand the legal decision what they can do they've compiled all of this stuff into into some um, really good places and sources and really kind of break down all of this conversation into a way where um, you can understand it and you can see how you can and um, move forward from there if you want to help defend ICWA. And then, of course, we always have our national organizations. The National Indian Child Welfare Association has put out several things. And, um, we also have Oklahoma Indian Child Welfare. The Oklahoma Indian Child Welfare Association. Association. So, ICWA, they have their page. And um, and also have some email blasts they send out. Um, Native American Rights Fund, I'm not for sure what their involvement looks like at this point, but they are one of the national organizations. I, I don't... They joined the joint statement. Right. Uh, other than that, I don't know what the um, strategy... Where they're going to fit in the, stra- the strategy, but they're always watching the legal cases and, right. and doing what they can. And there is that. So that is one of the things about Indian Country. Now, we did sign off on the national letter as well, Standing Our Ground for Children did. And um, th- there is... The formation of a national the, strategy. The letter was. So the letter was a, was a it. national response from several organizations, and um, I'm trying to think if I if I could figure out right off the top of my head who those organizations are, but I know NICWA definitely um, was one of the organizations that led the way, and I think that um, AAIA was actually Is what. Um, they were actually one of the organizations that were the first to respond. Let me see if I can't find. Um, a copy of that. So the Association of American Indian Affairs, the AAIA, the National Congress of American Indians, okay. the National Indian Child Welfare Association, and the Native American Rights Fund did release an official joint statement on the Indian Child Welfare case Bracking versus Zink ruling. And um, so with those organizations along with, it was over 20 other tribal organizations in Indian country just kind of put their stamp of approval on this letter. Saying that we are going to fight this, um, in fact, it even says in this letter, I'm looking at it right now, through 40 years of implementation, mm-hmm. ICWA's goal is to promote family stability and integrity. It continues to be the gold standard in child welfare policy. Yeah. And so, um, certainly, you know, Indian country is, is determined and committed to fighting this decision and to make sure that our law that protects our children stay intact. I like the sentence right before that. This agrarious decision ignores the direct federal government to government relationship and decades upon decades of precedent that have upheld tribal sovereignty and the rights of Indian children and families. That's the most concise. Yeah. <laughs> that really legal statement. In a nutshell. Yes. Wow. So what I mean what do you what what do you plan to do going forward right now while we wait to see what happens with this Texas decision? So one of the things that we're certainly doing and, and trying to be mindful of is to make sure that the national organizations are leading the way. We are a grassroots movement, so we are following the lead of the national strategy and doing kind of what um, we want to fall in line with the rest of Indian country. Mm-hmm. I think that the overall theme here, and I know there's a lot of organizations right now, there's a lot of people that are passionate, um, and we've had this discussion in Indian country about you know this, this, this person over here and this person over here. This is not a time to split hairs. This is a time to get in line for battle, whatever that looks like. So our line in this battle is behind those national organizations that are leading that fight. And so we are going to follow whatever national strategies come out, um, those communications. So today's efforts include making sure that people understand that we are having to fight the Indian Child Welfare Act. It has not been stricken down, it is still there. Um, that um, we want to um, we want people to understand why ICWA is still necessary and yes. relevant um, that our children still need the Indian Child Welfare Act so do our families and um, and so right now it's just a lot of public relations and a lot of mm-hmm. um, bringing awareness like you said not even knowing where this has been going on for years now mm-hmm. this attack is not brand new this attacks five years in the making and we really need to um, be careful about the conversations we're having in the media and not to be passive. We, mm-hmm. This is not a time to be passive. We can't just sit back and say, oh, this is going to work itself out because it could not, maybe. Right. And so mm-hmm. we need to make sure that we are all on board. And whatever the profession, whether it's social worker and you're advocating, whether it's an attorney, um, you know, there's, there's across the board, there's um, a lot of um, people that have stake in this mm-hmm. and that can do their part. And like I said, we're just a space for information. And, and as people reach out and can ask, we can we can guide them 
Um, in Oklahoma, I will say, they have really aligned themselves in the last five years since the um, baby Veronica decision. There is a, a state tribal partnership grant for ICWA in mm-hmm. our state wow. that includes educational pieces. Um, Teata Purcell is one of the, is the project director for that grant. She's Chickasaw. But there's actually, um, that grant's out of DHS, holds mm-hmm. that grant, and then the tribes have a piece. And so she's due to the, the OICWA position. Right. Um, but, you know, getting out there and, and helping everybody be aware, there's um, Angel Smith, who's an attorney that is Cherokee, and really um, another one of the attorneys that's really on the forefront of this ICWA fight. She has, um, she um, is out there educating as well, and um, and, and has, has, oh, so I know what I was going. She has an ICWA bench guide that she has helped develop, and that has been put out through OICWA, and I think she partnered with them. And that that bench guide's huge. Our law, our judges that are sitting there making those decisions need to know ICWA. Yes. And so this ICWA bench guide helps guide the judges in Oklahoma. That's so great. I know. That's really So fantastic. they have done a lot of proactive work in Oklahoma That's in the really last five cool. years, and so we're actually in a really good place. Um, so on, on the state level, um, just, you know, whatever we can do to support those love, those efforts. Um, but on a national level, as far as standing our ground for children, like I said, we're just following the, the national the national agencies and, and doing what they need us to well, do. Well, where can you be found online and in all the places? In all the places. Yes. Okay. So, Standing Our Ground for Children has got the Facebook page, and that's the one that really kind of most of the information goes out through that. And then we also have the Twitter, which is Standing the Letter R and the Ground. Um, and then, of course, I have my personal Twitter, Jonna James, J-O-H-N-N-A-J-M-E-S. And um, what I would what I would really suggest is just looking up the Defend ICWA hashtag. Okay, following the right. Defend following ICWA the Defend ICWA hashtag, hashtag, retweeting that, getting those stories out there, helping combat some of because there is still a media campaign on the other side. Absolutely, sure. they really are trying to get this message that ICWA's been stricken down, and we really have to fight back. So, um, if if Anything else, that's what we can do social media. Go find that Defend Equity hashtag on your Twitter or on your Facebook. And share that. And share share that stories. and use that. Yeah. And that's another thing. There's some places where people that are pre-ICWA, a lot of Native adoptees have stepped forward to, have to, to, to share their stories. You oh, can yes. go to YouTube and look up Native adoptees and, and, and look at the stories. Um, ICWA, I, we didn't talk about the background of ICWA, but real quick, it, just, it comes out of the boarding school era and what happened with over 35 percent of Native American children being removed from their families and so a lot of those children have grown up there was also an adoption swoop error where Native children were specifically taken from Native homes and put in non-Native homes so they could be civilized mm-hmm. those children right. and, 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 so and some too, tribes lost 100 percent of their children history right. yeah and so now we so we have the Indian Child Welfare Act that's actually where it came out of that study by Congress mm-hmm. that said Indian children are being removed from their families at a disproportionate rate and, and they, they are still disproportionately represented still are very disproportionate system mm-hmm. absolutely and so, um, so a lot of those children pre-ICWA is what we call pre-ICWA children. Mm-hmm. They have grown. I mean, there are elders now, mm-hmm. and they can tell us the stories, and we need to listen to those stories. Those and we stories need to are share heartbreaking. Those. They are I've, very yeah, heartbreaking. I've talked to several about it, and it's just awful. It, it, it is. It is um, heartbreaking, and um, well, I'm definitely going to to get on YouTube and and watch some of these stories. I'm assuming some of them will be on there. Absolutely. Okay. Yep, you can look at a map and share. I educate myself a little more on this. So thank you. Thank you for sharing with me, especially since I was not educated about it. But I'm sure I'm not the only one. So I appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you for being willing to come on. Today. Thank you for having us and for creating a platform to have this discussion. Yeah. You can contact the podcast at brokebrokenpodcast at gmail.com. The Broken Broken Podcast can be found on Twitter at Broke Broken Show, on Instagram and Facebook at Broke Broken Podcast.